Read with me as I read our sermon text. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything that you have in the field to a place of shelter. Because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall over Egypt on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and, had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hell stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long 
will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all of your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in the land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going? Moses answered, We will go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt. And the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, 
I will never appear before you again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Minister to us now powerfully through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Godwin. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at South Shore Baptist Church. And we are continuing in our Exodus series. So keep your Bibles open to Exodus. We're going to be focused on, in on the last plague, Exodus 10, 21 through 29. When I was 19 years old, I was a camp counselor and soccer coach at a camp called Spring Hill. It's much like Camp Brookwoods. I know many of you send your kids up to New Hampshire to you know, the Christian camp. and uh, It's a great time, and, and I uh, had a lot of great memories that summer. It was right after my freshman year of college. And uh, I, I would work uh, alongside this, this guy named Troy most of that summer, and we would take care of 10 to 15 middle school boys. Imagine that, 10 to 15 middle school boys for a week. And then we get a new set the next week, 10 to 15 middle school boys. Well, Troy and I had a um, kind of a mission every week. We would try to pinpoint the one or two boys that thought that they were all that in a bag of chips with the ladies. You know, what what we affectionately would call uh, in the mid-90s Mac Daddies. We try to identify those proud dudes that thought that they they could, uh, you know, just flirt with the ladies, and they had it all together. And what we would do is we would try to humble them. And we had various strategies for this. We'd you know, give them a hard time in different ways, but probably our favorite strategy was to publicly shame them. I remember one time uh, Troy and I were watching uh, one of my favorite Mac Daddies uh, that summer, Bobby, watching him work his magic during free time with six or seven young ladies, and they were chuckling and laughing, and he was doing his thing. And I said, hey, Troy, watch this. And I walked over to Bobby, and I put my arm around his shoulder, and I said, Bobby, don't worry about last night. Your sleeping bag is in the laundry. (laughs) And I wish you had been there. I I will never forget his face, but also the faces of the ladies. Now, Bobby... uh, Bobby was a good guy. Uh, a few days later, a few days later, I remember talking to Bobby, and um, you know we were near a campfire, and we were gathered around all of us after somebody had given a message from the Bible, and Bobby was asking questions. And one of the questions he asked was, "What gives God the right to judge people?" I'll never forget that question. What gives God the right to judge people? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? Why does God have the right to punish people based on the merit of their actions? That seems so cruel, right? I mean, life is so complicated. There's so many factors affecting each of our individual lives, family of origin, all the stuff that happens to us. And so to get to the end of our lives and and find that somehow we've racked up a lot of wrongs and so deserve punishment, it seems so unfair. But that's the kind of God that we see 
in Exodus, in particular in the plague narratives of Exodus. We've seen that he is the stronger one. He's more powerful than anything else. And yes, we, we love that part. That's encouraging to us, right? We've seen here that uh, he's looking to display his supremacy, display his worth to Israel and to Egypt. And two thumbs up, we love that stuff. But the way he shows us his power, the way he shows us his supremacy, it's through judgment. It's through judging a people. Measured, calculated acts of judgment. It's hard to swallow. Now, if we just looked at this story, these narratives on the plagues like a mythological story, well, yeah, it's easy just to nod our heads and move on. But if we consider that this is historical information, that this really happened a few thousand years ago to a nation across the Atlantic Ocean, that God really did this, well, we might have some questions like, What gives God the right to judge Egypt? How can God harden Pharaoh's heart and then judge him for those actions? How can God send these disastrous plagues to Egypt? What about Israel? Did they not deserve plagues as well? It's not like they were the, the prime example and model of faith and obedience, right? So the question before us is, what do we learn about God as judge as we look at these narratives? And to answer that question, I want to zoom in on one of the plagues that Stephen read for us this morning, the plague of darkness, the ninth plague, chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. Let's pray before we look at this plague. Oh, Father, we do ask, as Stephen asked, that your word would be effective, Lord, in our lives and hearts. We pray that you would work. We pray that you would speak. We pray that you would encourage and inform and exhort us. We pray that you would do this all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Can you guys hear that popping? Maybe it's this. I don't know what it is. Okay. All right. So, verses 21 through 23 God judges Egypt with physical darkness. God judges Egypt with physical darkness. Let me read these verses again. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So here's plague number nine. We've seen a bunch of plagues up to this point. We've gotten past uh, blood and frogs and gnats and flies and pestilence, disease, hail, and locusts. And now, for three days, Egypt is going to be under darkness. Complete darkness. Now, days of darkness would frighten really anybody, this uh, long a period of darkness, but they probably especially terrify the Egyptians because they worshipped the sun. They worshipped the sun god who was Amon-Ra, or you've probably heard of Ra. And he was the chief god in Egypt. In fact, the way most Egyptians began their day 
was morning worship dedicated to Ra. Not only because he was the source of life and the source of light, but because the sunrise signaled a daily renewal of the earth for the Egyptians. Ra was alive, he was well, and he had protected the Egyptian people in the midst of the darkness of night and the evil and chaos of night. So with darkness, Yahweh goes right to the heart of Egypt and deals Amen-Ra with a death blow. Darkness for three days, no sunrise, no Egyptian worship of Ra. Now look at the description of, of how heavy and awful this darkness was in verses 21 and 22. It's a darkness that spread over Egypt, a, a darkness that can be felt. It was palpable. Total darkness covered Egypt. No one could see anyone or move about for three days. Now, I'm not positive, but God may have even prevented candles and, and, and um, lamps from staying lit during this time because it says total darkness for Egypt. And obviously, this isn't natural. This isn't an eclipse. This isn't, um, you know, a crazy sandstorm or something like this, like that. This is supernatural stuff that God was doing. I want to run an experiment. Okay, so you have to work with me here. I want you to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes completely tight. Okay? Now I want you to gently give a high five to a person near you. Okay, gently. Okay, we're about, yeah, about 50% success rate. Okay, keep your eyes closed. Keep your eyes closed. Now I want you to grab the red hymnal in front of you and turn to page 486. There you go, a couple, yeah, we're about 4% success right here. Okay, open your eyes up. So what's the point of this little exercise? Well, I'm publicly trying to shame you. No, I'm not trying to shame you. Ordinary life is hard when you're in the dark, right? So it was for Egypt. Ordinary life came to a standstill. Ordinary activities were impossible. It was tough to brush your teeth, it's tough to go to work and play with your kids and, and uh, you know, open up your hymnal. Not to mention, you'd probably be uh, running into things constantly, stubbing your toes constantly, right? I hate stubbing my toe, getting angry over things like that. Maybe the first day you feel confused, you're wondering why is, why is it so dark and maybe this is going to change. But by the second day, you're probably afraid and maybe even despairing can't worship Ra anymore. Where is Ra? So how would life continue for the Egyptian people with total darkness? But this is more than just an assault on the Egyptian god Ra. There's something bigger happening here, and, and I want you guys to get this. This is really important as we think about the plagues. In this plague of darkness, and really every plague, God was essentially reversing the six days of creation. God was showing that he could unmake what he had already made. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Each plague was an undoing of some part of the created order. So animals were harming people instead of serving people during these plagues. Waters became a source of death instead of a source of life. Frogs and insects, rather than maintaining their ordained place within the ecosystem, they were multiplying and invading Egypt, and, of course, chaos ensued. And darkness? 
Well, that brings us back to Genesis chapter 1, the first pages of Scripture. God called light out of darkness, and he separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day and the, the darkness night. Well, here, we're going backwards. God is decreating things. This is how God judges, by undoing creation. And every part of Egyptian life was affected by this. So let's revisit our question. What right does God have to judge? Well, the first answer as we look at this plague is God is creator. He is creator. Behind these plagues, we're, we're reminded of a God who orders and disorders creation for his purposes. He has that kind of power, that kind of authority in our lives. You know, we don't, uh, God doesn't belong to us, we belong to him. So he has every right to judge people. But we also see that God is just in this passage. These aren't arbitrary judgments that he's dishing out. God is giving them over to their wishes, right? If they want an existence without God, without Yahweh, then God's like, okay, I'm going to withhold my creational blessings. It's kind of a sort of, a, sort of an ironic justice. God is committed to justice. That's what we see here. You know, and I think we want to worship a God who is committed to justice. I think we want to worship a God and know a God who is committed to justice. And you, might, you might think that's crazy. Is that really true? Let me ask you a couple questions. Would you really worship a God who never, ever judged the culprits of 9-11? Would you be okay with a God who wasn't concerned about social justice issues in our country? Would that be okay with you? No, of course not. Our issue is we choose to enjoy God's justice. We choose to enjoy God's judgment in particular spheres, but not other spheres. What, God, what gives God the right to judge? Well, he's creator. He's committed to justice. And as, as I read these plague narratives, I'm wondering why God hasn't destroyed us. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why hasn't God brought these plagues onto America, onto Syria, onto Israel, onto Nigeria? Every nation, every people group, just like the Egyptians, we are all wicked. We are all running away from God. So why hasn't He brought these decreational forces? These plagues onto us. Well, it's because he's more than just a judge, right? He's more than just a judge. The fact that I'm breathing right now, freely breathing air, tells me that he's just as merciful as he is judge. Right? The fact that we can go freely about our days, freely about our days, doing all sorts of absurd and silly and sometimes sinful things, tells me that God is far more merciful and gracious than we would imagine. God may have brought a felt darkness to Egypt, but he also brings a mercy that can be felt in our lives, right? 
So God judges Egypt with darkness as a direct, uh, direct assault on Egyptian worship and their way of life. But ultimately, he does this to demonstrate his cre- uh, control over the created order. So let's look at verses 24 through 29. We see God judges Pharaoh with spiritual darkness, not just physical darkness. Here we see spiritual darkness. Let me read these verses to you. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know where we are to use to worship the Lord what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. God judges Pharaoh with spiritual darkness. Here we don't have that physical darkness that can be felt, but I think we have some spiritual darkness that can be felt. In the first few plagues, the narrator, Moses, he says that Pharaoh was hardening his own heart against God and the things of God. But in the last few plagues, and, and this one as well, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. A couple of weeks ago, Mark explained the hardening of God's heart really well. Do you remember what he said? He said, a person who's pointing in a certain direction, who's moving in a particular direction, and then God makes him a statue. God holds him in that particular direction. So hardening of the heart is when God gives someone over to their disposition that they already have that's against him. I know this is a tricky teaching, right? This is difficult for us to understand and to accept at times. God judges with spiritual darkness. We see the impact of this spiritual darkness in this story. First in verse 24, we see Pharaoh continues to bargain with Moses. Yeah, you can, you can, uh, you can go out into the, to the desert, you can worship, but don't take the livestock. Leave the livestock behind. Moses is like, hey, if we're going to go worship, we need to take the livestock so we can offer some sacrifices. You see that also in verses 27 and 28, when Pharaoh refuses to see Moses again. And in refusing to see Moses again, he's actually refusing to rightly see God again. Pharaoh's spiritual receptors have been cut off. He's spiritually blind. Living in physical darkness teaches us a lot about what it looks like to live in spiritual darkness. You know, it's chaotic, it's confusing. You can't find your bearings, you're lost, you get angry. Before Jesus came into, the, into our lives, this is a picture of our spiritual states. All of us were like Pharaoh, living in spiritual darkness, unable to totally understand who God is. I'm not saying that God once hardened all of our hearts. What I am saying is that apart from God's grace, We were all living in spiritual darkness. That was where we started. I think there's a warning here for for all of us in this room. 
Beware of resisting God. Beware of resisting God. Beware of opposing God and defying God over and over and over and over again as if there's no consequences, as if God's grace is so full and free that there's no consequences because there is potentially a point of no return. When God may decide to harden our heart like Pharaoh and leave us to our own devices. So take this as a warning and repent and believe in the gospel so you may not receive God's judgment. But I want to warn you about this warning. I think you should be careful with this warning. I don't want you to be unnecessarily afraid. As if every point of resistance or every moment of disobedience might signal that you aren't part of God's flock. Christian life is all about repentance, right? Every single day we we resist God in some way and then we repent. This warning is for the person who is continually walking into that felt darkness. Continually walking into that felt darkness. And maybe you've counseled people, maybe you've pleaded with folks and you've advised and cautioned folks, but they won't listen. I'm going to stop for a second. Is that super distracting to everybody? Okay. Okay. Move this out. Awesome. Is that better? Can you hear me? All right. Man, thanks, Aaron. <laughs> so I want you to I want you to feel the warning, but I also want you to be warned about the warning. Right? I want you to be careful with this warning. There are people who you've pleaded with, that you've cautioned, that you've advised. Come back to Jesus. They're sitting in their sin. It's those folks that need to hear this warning. Be careful of resisting God. So God is not just a ruler over mountains and fields and the seas and light and darkness, someone who judges with decreational forces. He's also ruler over people's hearts. He judges with spiritual darkness. Okay, so back to our question. What gives God the right to judge with spiritual darkness? You know, as I I look at this passage, especially this part with Pharaoh, I think a better question is what gives us the right to judge God? If I'm like Pharaoh apart from God's grace, just a, a dude with a hard heart, a dude who's living in darkness, hopeless apart from God's intervening grace, what gives me the right to question God or even ask that question to begin with? In other words, I think we should all have a healthy skepticism about our own perceptions of life and God. Picture picture with me all of humanity on a a huge field. This is going to be super silly, but all of humanity on a huge field, and and God is on one end, and and people are on the other end. And sometimes we we think the picture that the Bible presents us is is of all of humanity calling out to God and crying out to God, help me, bless me, you know, protect me. God, we see you, we love you, please choose me. And then God looks at all of humanity and in his weirdness chooses some of us and casts aside the rest of us. And that's why we're so confused with God's judgment, right? Why, why that person and not this person? 
That's not the picture the Bible presents to us. It's more like all of us are running blind away from God as fast as we can, running further and further into that felt darkness. And God miraculously, powerfully, irresistibly chooses some of us to be objects of his love and mercy. In other words, he gives us sight. And yes, some of us he may harden as well. And if that's the situation, then my question is, what gives me the right to judge God? If I start out in a place of spiritual blindness. To close, I want to give you three ways God's judgment should impact Christians. So here's three applications. Here's the first one. God's judgment ought to unsettle us. Unsettle us. And, uh, you know, if you've been listening to this sermon, you probably feel uncomfortable. This is hard stuff, right? This is big stuff. God punishing people for not obeying him and living holy lives. That's not a small thing. That's a heavy thing for all of us. We look at these plagues and we see the extent of the judgment that God's judgment impacted every aspect of Egyptian life. And that's a picture of the judgment to come in Revelation. How can I make that connection? Because in God's final judgment, he undoes creation upon his enemies. That's what final judgment looks like. It's not just a small dose of judgment that he, he gives to a little area, impacting a little area of life. You and I might be able to deal with that. No, this is living out the cursed life. That's what judgment is, with God withholding his creational blessings. But I think this is unsettling, uh, this, this unsettling and this discomfort that God's judgment brings us is so good for us because it reminds us of lots of things. It reminds us that we're not just messing around for 80 years on a playground while, you know, some sort of divine grandpa is dishing out money for snacks and ice cream. That's not the situation. Judgment creates a real palpable, palpable urgency in our lives. We're in a war zone. We're not living in a playground. And people are dying to our left and right all the time. And the question is, will we tell them about Jesus? Or will we watch them further run into darkness? May God unsettle us with his judgment so that we may freely and urgently share Christ. Amen? Number two, God's judgment comforts us. God's judgment comforts us. Let me give you an example. What is the only comfort that you have as you think about ISIS? What is the only comfort that you have as you think about the activities at Auschwitz? Or some of the things that may have even occurred in your own life, injustices that you've endured. What is your comfort? Well, I would guess one big thing that you take comfort in is knowing that God will judge. God keeps an accurate record of every wrong committed, and he's going to settle the score. Maybe not right now, but at some point in life. And that should bring us comfort, emotional stability, peace. But it also helps us not to take revenge. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance says, 
Well, vengeance says lots of things, but vengeance looks at the cross and looks at hell, and it says, you know, that's not enough. That's not enough. I'm going to take this into my own hands. But a robust theology of God's judgment is going to inform you in those moments and in those temptations when you want to lash out. Is there someone you are tempted to take a little vengeance with in your life right now? Maybe it's you know, saying an unkind word or um, doing sneaky, subtle things to undermine them, or maybe it's more of a direct assault on their reputation. Whatever it might be, is there someone that you are tempted to take a little vengeance with? Would you remember that you are not their judge? You're just a blind beggar that's been given sight and food. Would you recognize that God will make things right? Somehow, in the end, he's going to do it. And would that reality bring you comfort and stability in life? Number three, God's judgment ought to humble us. It ought to humble us. This is a uh, dark section of Scripture, uh, pun intended. Um, It's dark and gloomy and scary, but there is some light in this section. Look at verse 23. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So Israel had light. I don't know how that worked. I don't know how that looked. You know, a Jewish person to walk around Goshen and Egypt with like a spotlight shining on that person. I don't know. It could have been weird like that. But they had light. Why did they have light? Were they the most powerful people, most attractive nation to God? And so he said, hey, I'm going to save them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to deliver them. No. They had hard hearts for a time too, didn't they? They struggled with disobedience too. It had nothing to do with this nation. It had everything to do with God's sheer grace. God had chosen them to be his people. And that's us too. It's out of sheer grace that God preserves us from this judgment. Do you remember what happened at the cross? The gospel accounts tell us that at 9 a.m. Jesus was hung on the cross just outside Jerusalem on a little hill called Golgotha. At noon, for three hours before Jesus died, God brought darkness. Right in the middle of the day, God reversed creation and brought darkness. Darkness, And it was a darkness that signaled a judgment that was to come. But a judgment that was to come, not on the people around the cross. If we were all there, we would have deserved that judgment. It's a judgment on Jesus. What gives God the right to judge people? I'm not convinced that's a good question to ask. Because when we look at the cross, I don't think that's the question we want to ask. We want to ask other questions. Like, why did he spare us? Why did he judge Jesus? Those are better questions, right? Because Jesus never resisted God. He never walked away from God. In fact, he was the light of the world. And he came to give sight to the blind. But he got darkness on that day. He got judgment. He got punishment. And so this is a humbling reality. So, my friends, may God be exalted and worshipped as the judge of the world. For many reasons, some of which we've talked about today, 
But the most important reason to exalt God as judge is cross. Because at the cross, you get unrelenting, ferocious judgment. And you get unrelenting, ferocious mercy. Let's pray. Father, we do revel in the cross today as we consider you as the judge of the world. Lord, this is a hard teaching for us as we think about what you did to this nation, as we think about not only physical judgment, but also spiritual darkness, judgment on people. Father, would you, would you help us to understand this? Would you help us to worship you not only as Savior and lover and forgiver, but also as judge? Would you help us to hold that um, carefully, Lord? Father, we uh, go from this place, and uh, we want to worship you, and we want to um, celebrate the gospel. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.